It's great to be back with you and open up God's Word with you. As we come to look at God's Word, I would ask you to have your Bibles open at Luke 18, 9 down to 14. Luke 18, 9 down to 14. And as we come to the end of January, there is this danger that we can start to take our eyes off God and start to focus on what lies ahead and are thinking more about our own performance and what we need to do than resting in the gospel. For example, we may be feeling disheartened in our walks with the Lord because we haven't kept up with our Bible reading plans. Maybe we've missed a couple. Maybe we've just given up altogether. Or maybe we haven't prayed X amount of times this week or in a day like we said we would. Or that specific sin or sins that we found we are put to death this year is still getting the better of us. But please don't hear me wrong. These are good things to be desired. The problem is when we take our eyes off God and start being engrossed with our own performance instead of resting in the gospel and allowing our fruit to flow out of our union with Christ, our works therefore being evangelical works, gospel works, works of gratitude rather than law-based works, works seeking to earn favor with God. We need to be careful of not falling into the trap of focusing on what we do instead of focusing on what God has already done for us in Christ. With that in mind, this leads us into our passage this evening and where we see what this passage is here in the Bible to get done in our hearts. I want us to see this evening that this passage is in our Bibles so that it may expose to us the folly of self-righteousness and draws closer to God. It is here to expose to us the folly of self-righteousness and draws closer to God. Or if you want to condense that down to one big idea, this passage is here to draw us to rest in Christ. To draw us to rest in Christ. So this evening, the aim is to get us to fix our eyes back upon God. And we will do this by splitting the passage up into four sections. The first section will be first 9 and 10, the setup to the parables. The second section will be first 11 and 12, the Pharisee's self-righteousness. The third section will be first 13, the tax collector's God dependence. And the fourth section will be the beauty of the gospel. So our first section Verse 9 to 10, the setup to the parable. Follow along as I read these verses. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. In verse 9, we see the setting of the scene for us. We are told who the hearers are and what their condition is, which helps us to identify the reason why Jesus is telling this parable. And from this verse, we can see that he is seeking to expose the folly of trusting in yourself, or the folly of self-righteousness. Jesus then goes on after that and highlights one of the consequences of self-righteousness. It puffs up. 
It makes us exalt ourselves above our stations and take our eyes off God. The key problem that Jesus is exposing is that they are trusting in themselves, that they are far from God. They are looking inward for their assurance. They are looking to self rather than to God for their hope. And so, again, remember the idea for this passage is to expose us to the folly of self-righteousness and draw us closer to God. Then verse 10 sets the scene for the parable. It introduces us to the two characters, the Pharisee and the tax collector. These two characters don't really have the same effect on us because of our ideas and all other knowledges, knowledge about the Pharisee in the rest of the Bible. In the original audience of Jesus' parable, they would have seen who the Pharisee was and the tax collector more clearly than us. Specifically, the Jews would have seen the Pharisee as this man of God, someone who is upright, someone that you'd want to mind your children when you go out for a date. And then they would see the tax collector as this traitor, this deceiver, one who skims off the top of others to make his own living. But as, we, as this parable will show us, God does not look at the external, but the internal. God does not show partiality, but rather offers his mercy to all, no matter what society thinks of you. God is willing and does save the worst of sinners, or as Paul says, the chief of sinners. The free offer of the gospel is to all. Then we're coming to our second section, verses 11 and 12, the Pharisees' self-righteousness. The Pharisees' self-righteousness. Again, follow along as I read verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, idolaters, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The first thing I want us to see as we look at the Pharisee's prayer is that what we pray about reveals what our heart's desire is and, tr- and what our heart's trust in. So what we pray about reveals what our heart's desire and trust in. Or to put it another way, the content of our prayers reveal the content of our hearts. Think back to last year in our home groups, and as our church, we looked at the prayers of Paul, and there we seen the desires of his heart and what he trusted in most. And if you can think back, if we were to sum up the content of Paul's prayers, we could say they were God-centered, gospel-focused, and filled with longings that others would know and grow in Christ. Therefore, as we examine Paul's prayers, it revealed what his heart desired and what it trusted in most. And in this parable, Jesus uses the same technique to expose the Pharisees and the tax collectors' hearts. And so one point of application from this first thing is that examining our own prayers can be a helpful tool to gauge the health of our hearts. But remember that we examine ourselves in light of the gospel so that it is a pruning exercise that leads to fruitfulness and not an uprooting exercise that leads to despair. 
So let me say that again. When we examine ourselves, we do it in light of the gospel so that it is a pruning exercise that leads to fruitfulness and not an uprooting exercise that leads to despair. The second thing then I want us to see in the Pharisee's prayer is its focus. He is focused on himself and his works. What he doesn't do in verse 11 and what he does do in verse 12. And also notice that it is a horizontal focus comparing himself with others. For example, he is glad that he is not like the tax collector. And you can say it's not completely focused on himself because he says he thanks God at the start of his prayer. But as another's put it, he glances at God but contemplates on himself. He glances at God but contemplates himself. I want us to see the bondage of self-righteousness can be deceptive. Think Think about it. Apart from the comment about the tax collector, all that the Pharisee was doing was good and righteous. So it makes us ask the question, what is the Pharisee getting wrong? Well, his confidence or his assurance for standing before God is based upon his own works. He is trusting in his own righteousness. And this then flows into the third thing I want us to see, which is the folly of trusting in our own righteousness. As we have seen above, the, Pharisee, the Pharisee's prayer reveals that his confidence, his assurance, is in his own performance, his own works, his own righteousness, and not in God. He is trusting in himself. But this is folly or foolishness. His confidence is misplaced, for as Paul says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then he later goes on and says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Pharisee has not used the law correctly, but has rather misused it. Instead of letting the law expose his sin, he has deluded it and allowed it to puff up his pride and give him false assurance. Just to clarify, maybe you're asking, what does it mean by diluting the law? What do I mean when I say diluted the law? Well, the Pharisee has set up his own horizontal law. He has weakened the law and made himself the standard of the law and is comparing others to himself, as we again see in verse 11. He says, I'm glad I'm not like others or like that tax collector. But the problem is God's law is vertical. God is the standard. His commandments reflect his holiness and his righteousness. If the Pharisee would have compared himself against God's law and used the law correctly, it would have exposed his sin and humbled him, and made him recognize, like the rich young ruler, that it is impossible to keep God's law perfectly. That's what Paul means when he says, all fall short of God's glory. The law exposes our sinfulness. It doesn't justify us. It doesn't make us right with God. Rather, it drives us to trust in something outside of ourselves. The law's purpose is to expose our sin. Helpful way maybe to think about this is I used to work in Spar for a number of years. We used to have this wee magic pen. There was a time period when there was a lot of fake 50-pound notes. 
And we had this wee pen, and if you would write on it, it would show a line. Um, if it came up with a line, it means it's fake. If it didn't come up with a line, it means it's good. So this wee pen's um, purpose was to expose the counterfeit, to expose the fake notes. And so therefore, God gives us his law, not to justify us, but to expose our sinfulness. The law's purpose is to drive us to not depend on our own righteousness. For when God holds you to his standard, the folly of self-righteousness will be exposed and you will cry out like those in verse 26 of this passage saying, who then can be saved? The law drives us to say with Paul that none, no, not one, can be saved by the works of the law, but that it is only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone that any can be justified or made right with God, as we'll see in verses 13 and 14. But let's just reflect on this first section and what we've already seen. And I want to speak to three specific groups. Firstly, I want to speak to the unbeliever. You may be thinking this is a bit radical. This guy's a bit crazy in the head. You may be sitting there thinking, I'm not that bad of person. Or I've heard this before. My friend says, don't worry, Patty. When I die, I'll rock up to the gates of heaven and me and God will have a conversation. Like I'm not that bad. Surely he isn't going to send me to hell for eternity. But the sad reality is, that we all fall short of God's glory and that we bring nothing to the table when it comes to being right with God. There's no negotiation. My only hope and your only hope is to be in Christ Jesus for all who are found outside of him on the day of judgment will be found wanting. Let the law push you to the gospel. Don't trust in your own righteousness before it is folly and you will be damned and found wanting. The second person I want to talk to is the deceived person, the person who is self-righteous in themselves. And you may be sitting here this evening comforting yourself by looking to what you have done. You, like the Pharisee, have glanced at God but are still focusing on what you bring to the table. For example, you may be thinking, that can't be me. I attend church every week. Um, I read my Bible most days. I even serve in church. And again, don't get me wrong, these are good things, but they are not our confidence or our foundation or our assurance before God. If we are looking to our good works or our performances for our confidence and assurance before God, we have got it all wrong and we are under the bondage of self-righteousness. Our confidence, our assurance, is founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ Jesus alone. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. We bring nothing to the table. It is Christ alone that is our hope. And then the third person I want to speak to is the believer Firstly, I just want to urge you to guard your heart against self-righteousness. You may be asking, how can I do that? By continually looking to Christ Jesus. And a practical way of doing that is preaching the gospel to yourself. 
reminding you that you bring nothing to the table, but you simply cling to Christ alone by faith. And then the second thing I just want us to be careful about is that we don't become like the Pharisees when we read this um, parable, but rather that we become like Jesus having compassion on the lost. I think it's so easy that we read this parable and we look at that Pharisee and we say, God, I thank you that I'm not like the Pharisee. I'm not a hypocrite. I don't trust in my righteousness. And that's a wrong attitude. You have become the Pharisee thanking God for what you're not. We want to be like Jesus who looks out on the lost and has compassion on them. The gospel humbles us. The gospel drives us to want to share with others. We are poor beggars who have found food, seeking others to where they find it. The gospel does not puff up, but it humbles. Then moving then, sorry, moving in to our third section, verse 13, the tax collector's God dependence. The tax collector's God dependence. Verse 13 reads, But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The first thing I want us to see in verse 13 is the posture of the tax collector towards God, the spirit, the attitude in which he approaches God. We read there, um, he, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. There is a fear, a reverence, an acknowledgement of who he's coming before. I fear in evangelical circles we have lost this. We forget that God is God, that he is holy, transcendent, sovereign, all-powerful, a consuming fire, one who will by no means clear the guilty. When we dwell on who God is, there should be a fear of God within us, a reverence as we approach him. Think of Proverbs 1 and 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Or Psalm 128, first one, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. I want to see that our reverential fear of the Lord is a good thing for our souls. But I also want us to be balanced in our fear of God, for he reveals himself also to be good, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, compassionate, one who will by no means break the bruised reed or quench a faintly burning wick. And when we dwell on who the Lord is, we have to step back and say, who is like the Lord our God? There are none like him. He is glorious. And I think C.S. Lewis helpfully illustrates this kind of, these two sets of attributes of God, thinking about God's all-powerfulness and his consuming fireness and his holiness and his goodness and his compassion and his gentleness in the illustration he uses in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So there's this character, Lucy, and she has just found out from Mr. Beaver and Mrs. Beaver that Aslan is a lion, so Aslan represents God in this story. And so Lucy obviously says, is he safe? And then Mr. Beaver says, safe? Didn't you hear what Mrs. Beaver told you? Who said anything about safe? 
course he isn't safe. He's a lion, but he's good. He's a good lion. I think that's a helpful picture to recognize that Aslan was a good lion, though he was all-powerful. He was a lion. Our God is the sovereign, holy God, but he is a good God, and we can trust in him. So the first thing I want us to take away from verse 13 is that as we dwell on who God is and who we are, there should be a reverential fear as we approach him, but a comfort in knowing that he is good. A right fear of God leads us to rest in him. And then the second thing I want us to see in verse 13 is the tax collector's confession In the second half, he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want us to see that the tax collector has a correct anthropology, a correct understanding of man's nature. He has compared himself to God and used the law correctly, and his sins have been exposed. He sees that he is a rebel against God, that he is under the wrath of God because by nature he is sinful. And that is true for all mankind. All our natures are sinful by nature. We are all dead in sins and trespasses unless the Lord has mercy on us. So the tax collector, instead of offering up filthy rags to God, rather looks away from his own works and looks to God and cries out, have mercy on me. And this flows nicely into the third thing I want us to notice, the tax collector's plea. And I want us to see three things about his plea, which is um, in verse 13, where it says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The first thing is the implication of asking for mercy. It's a recognizing that God would be just to punish him. The tax collector comes with nothing to offer God but a simple, faith-filled plea that God would be gracious and merciful to him. The tax collector brings nothing to the table. And I was just thinking about that when I was preparing, and the hymn Rock of Ages came to mind, and this line, it says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Mercy is our only plea before a holy God. Second, then, I want us to notice the depth of the word mercy that is used. It has this idea of propitiation behind it, meaning atoning sacrifice or satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf. The tax collector further recognizes that God must provide a way from him or he is hopeless. I don't think it's a stretch to think that the tax collector is in the temple and he sees these daily sacrifices for sins being offered. And he may not have a full picture, but in his heart, he knows that God must atone for him. He cannot atone for himself. It must be a work of God on his behalf. I just think of Ezekiel 16, 63, where it says, I atone for you all that you you have done, declares the Lord. There's a recognition that the Lord must atone on our behalf. And that is the beauty of the gospel. 
God does atone for his people at the cross where justice and mercy meet. And then thirdly, in the plea, I want us to see the absolute God-dependence of the tax collector's plea. We could put it this way. He is trusting and resting in God alone for salvation. You read verse 13 and you see a man who has nothing to offer but can only cling to a gracious and merciful God. He trusts not in himself like the Pharisee, but in God alone. And then this flows nicely in the first 13, our final section, where we see the beauty of the gospel. Verse 14, the beauty of the gospel. Follow along with me as I read. It says, I tell you this. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And I want to look at the first half of verse 14 by thinking about the simplicity of the gospel and the profundity of the gospel. So firstly, the simplicity of the gospel, the freeness of the gospel. If I was to say, what is the gospel? We could say, the gospel is all who come to God, he will not cast out. It's that simple, it's that free. Or if you want to put a wee bit more flesh on the bones, you could say, all who come to God by faith, he will justify through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And we see that in verse 14. He simply cries out, Lord, have mercy on me. He has faith in God, and God says, I will justify you. Not because of anything within you, but because of my free grace. Or think of Romans 9 and 10, 9, uh, 10 uh, verses 9 and 10, where it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The gospel is all about Jesus, who he is and what he has done. When I think about this, like, the, the freeness or the simplicity of the gospel. I was down a couple of months ago um, with a team, the Calvin Baptist, and we were knocking doors and we got speaking to this guy. And like myself, he's from a Roman Catholic background and so we were sharing the gospel with him. And he says, what must I do? And we were saying, you need to do nothing. You just need to receive Christ and rest in him. And his mind was blown. He kept saying to me, so you're telling me I have to do absolutely nothing but just trust in Christ. I don't need Mary. I don't need St. Jude. I don't need St. This. It's simply Christ. And in that moment, it just dawned on me the, the gloriousness, the freeness, the liberatingness, the restfulness of the gospel that Christ's offer. All who come to him, he will never cast out. So the simplicity, the freeness of the gospel. And next I want to kind of think about the profundity of the gospel or think about the depth of the gospel and what it means to be justified. And I want to do that firstly by thinking about the object of the tax collector's faith. For we affirm that we are saved by faith alone, but we also make the distinction that it is not the act of faith that saves us, but the object of our faith. And if we think about this parable, we see the Pharisee was placing his faith in his own righteousness, which we, show, we, which we have shown is folliness. But the tax collector was placing his faith 
in God alone to be his propitiation. He was trusting that God would provide a way for him to be reconciled. He had a supreme object. He had a great object to place his faith. Though it may be small, our faith, the object of our faith is able and willing to save Christ Jesus. And so therefore, as new covenant believers, we know that the way, th- the way that which God um, would reconcile us is through Jesus Christ. And so therefore, as we start to taste the richness of the gospel, let's think further about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Firstly, if we're thinking about the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, we want to think about his person. And just coming out of Christmas, we are familiar with the incarnation, Jesus becoming fully man, and he was fully God. But have you ever stopped to ask, why is it important for the gospel that he is fully man and fully God? For God to be just, he has to punish man for mankind's sin. Therefore, Jesus became like us, that he might redeem us. But no man could simply bear the wrath of God, so he had to also be fully God, so that he could bear the weight of our sins on our behalf. So the person of Jesus Christ is important for the gospel. There really is only one man for the job. Jesus Christ. And then this thinking about Christ's work. We could say he dies the death that we could not die. On the cross, he takes the sins of his people upon himself and satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf. And then he lives the life that we cannot live. He fulfills the law of God on our behalf. So that therefore in the gospel, we receive everything that we need. The gospel is free and it is sufficient to save. I like to think about the gospel in he cleanses us by his blood and he clothes us in his righteousness so that we are justified in Christ alone. And lastly and quickly, I just want to comment on the second half of verse 14 where it says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The gospel calls for us to humbly receive Jesus Christ by faith alone, through grace alone. We bring nothing to the table, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. And so, just before we end, I want to speak to those three specific groups again and remind you of the purpose of this passage Remember, this passage is here to draw us to rest in Christ. So unbeliever, you who do not know Christ, I call you, come to him. Cry out like the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Come to Jesus, receive him, accept him, trust what he says is true, and then rest in him alone, knowing that he will not cast any who comes to him. So you do not know Christ. Come and rest in him because he promises that he will give you rest for your souls. And then nextly, the deceived person, the one who is trusting in his own righteousness, I urge you to look to the law and let your sin be exposed. Let the folly of self-righteousness be shown to you. But don't stay there. Don't stay in despair. 
run to Jesus. Know that all who come to him, he will not cast out. Come to him. Rest in him alone. And likewise, find rest for your soul, for he will not cast you out. And then believer, brother, sister, I urge you, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Take your eyes off the world. Look away from yourself and your performance and even your feelings and look back to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Rest in Christ. We live in the gospel. We don't move on from it. Rest in Christ this evening, for he is sufficient and willing to give you rest. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel message. We thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that you call us to come to you and that all who come to you, you will not cast out, that you will cleanse us of our sins. You will tread them underfoot and cast them into the sea, never to be seen again. And we will be clothed in your righteous robes, Christ, never to be taken off us, never to be dirtied, perfect in Christ. We just thank you for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you so much, Paddy, for showing us the glories of what we have in Christ, of the glories of the gospel, that we come clinging to the cross and not, uh, not our own righteousness. Uh, and fittingly, we're going to close by singing a song that, that speaks of that, that points us to God's abundant mercy towards us. Uh, what love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Let's stand uh, and sing this together.
Let's pray together. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Lord, what a glorious gospel we have. What a glorious saviour we have. We rejoice in Jesus together this evening. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all evermore. Amen.